All right, we are in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Your handout looks a little more complicated than that, <clears throat> and that's, in, that's actually on purpose. Because to truly, uh, let's just say, dig into the, oh, I don't know, the vast nature of these particular few verses, you have to see them in context. Commentators and expositors often describe the first two chapters of Colossians as theological, and then chapters 3 and 4 as practical. So in other words, the heavy stuff we have already studied, and the good stuff is what we're starting with. That kind of makes sense from a a uh, very simplistic way of looking at Colossians, but I would argue that one cannot or should not separate them. One way to put it is your conduct is determined by your creed. So if you don't have a good theology, you do not know how to express the faith that you have been, um, you are attempting to live out. Last week, when we were working through the last part of chapter 2, we had verses 20 through 23, which I have on your handout, I asked the question at the end of chapter, of verse 23, where it says, they have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body, but there's no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And I asked the question, well, if this has no value, then what does? And the text answers it in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And as I mentioned last week, the chapter breaks are not inspired. They were added. The verse references are not inspired. They were added. They were added as a help for the laity to find things in the scripture. Because if you remember, historically, there was a lot of illiteracy, and the only ones who were literate were the priests. Or the mass was done in Latin. And so you would have no idea what they were even talking about. As the scriptures began to become more available, then people were trying to learn, and they would refer to something as, well, where is that? And they'd be, you know, if they had a Bible... They'd be flipping through it, trying to find it. That's why these were added. So always, when you're studying scripture, beware that you do not pull it out of its context. Because if you do, you run the risk of misunderstanding of what's going on. And by the way, if we, we're meeting here next week, right? Yes. Same room? Yes. Same. Same time. But they'll raise the temperature a little bit because I'm the only one who's moving around right now, and the rest of you are turning into ice cubes. I can tell. Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure how it works in here, but it. I know there's a thermostat, but it. It's locked. Yes. Anyway, so yeah, they have ice cubes hanging from down uh, from above in the mornings. Anyway, <clears throat> so you look at the big picture which is what I've tried to do in this handout. And the chart that you see there 
pulls from chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, and our text today. And you can see what Paul has done. He talks about the crucifixion of Christ, that he was buried, that he was resurrected, and that he ascended. But we have died, we were buried, we have been raised, all with Christ. And then in the present, Jesus lives at God's right hand, which you will see in verse 1 of chapter 3. But then our lives in verse 3 of chapter 3 are hidden with Christ, who is our life. And then in the end, Christ will appear in glory and we will be revealed with Christ in glory because he says when your life appears is revealed. This is a fascinating overview of this entire passage. And most people skip the big picture and they focus in on two or three words in verses 1 through 4. But you'll notice I ask a question under the chart. So, what does this have to do with me? I'm just fine without all this theological gobbledygook. And how often do we hear that? You know, you're being really theological here. I mean, you're making my brain hurt. As I said, your conduct is determined by your creed. And if you don't know what you believe, then how do you know how to act? Seriously, how do you live out something you, don't, you have not thought through? Well, C.S. Lewis, in his Weight of Glory address, said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We're like an arrogant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. In a sense, what we have here is the foundation of how and why we live today because it's based on the past, present, and future work of Christ. It's a reorientation. Uh, I guess one way I could phrase it, and it was very weak, but it's the best one I could come up with at the moment, is to rediscover the word up. How to look up. To look at things in heaven. And so I said, well, what are some metaphors or expressions of that? Um, You know, growing up in high school in Hawaii, there are times where you go out into the sea and the ocean and you end up with the waves can be a little powerful. Extremely powerful. To the point that you can drown in two feet of water, like I almost did. Because... I had ridden a wave all the way up to the beach and I was like, yes! And my friends are looking at me on the beach and they pointed behind me because behind me was coming an eight foot wave and I didn't see it. And it hit me, knocked me flat on my face and I couldn't get up. 
I couldn't get on my hands and knees, and it was like this washing machine. Now remember, I had just expelled all of my breath in my triumph. And I finally was able to push myself up, and there's all my friends on the beach. <laughs> you almost died. <laughs> Thanks, guys. You were just such good friends. Uh, you can all picture this, right? But I knew which way was up because of gravity. But what if you don't know gravity? I, I recently saw a YouTube video of a, one of the astronauts from one of the space stations, and he was describing his day, and then he showed his sleeping quarters. It was about this wide, and it was vertical. He sleeps standing up because there is no up or down. He had to strap himself to the wall so he wouldn't float away or bump into something while he's trying to sleep. And I thought, well, that's interesting. How do they know which way is up? Because in space, there is no up or down. It's you have to have something that you can focus on and therefore, you can orient yourself. You can reorient yourself to where that is so you can travel in the right direction. <coughs> that metaphor always falls apart when you get too, too deep into metaphors like this. But isn't this the way of what Paul's trying to express to us? Because in verse 1 of chapter 3, it starts with, if then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, you look at that and you kind of go, okay, you know, that makes sense. And we've all heard the wonderful sermons related to that. And it's a nice, wonderful sentiment. You could um, uh, cross-stitch it on a pillow. <laughs> uh, that's an inside joke between us because she corrected me many, many months ago on how I was describing crafts <laughs> as if I knew what I was talking about. Uh, <coughs> but it starts with what? It starts with being raised with Christ. What an interesting place to start. It also ends up with, starts with a... Uh, a conditional clause. If. If then. You've been raised with Christ. Martin Luther. I did a sermon on this passage many years ago. And in the sermon on Easter Wednesday. He spoke this way. And by the way. If you ever read things like Luther's works. You're actually reading his words. The transcriptions. Because there was someone on the front row taking shorthand of every word he said. So we, we're not reading something as like they just made it up. You know. Granted, the MP3 player probably wasn't working very well. Um, but we're reading his texts as he spoke them. And he said this, you must prove the resurrection of Christ in you to be something more than vain words. 
You must show there is a living power manifest in you because you are risen. A power which makes you lead a different life. One in obedience to the word and will of God and called the divine or heavenly life. Where this change does not take place, it's a sign that you're not yet Christians. But you're deceiving yourself with vain fancies. That's a pretty powerful statement. And when you think about this idea of being raised in Christ, we again, we kind of twist our heads around it. <coughs> John MacArthur describes this phrase as a reminder to us of where we start everything. But then it says to seek the things that are above. The literal word for seek is to pursue. So what are you pursuing? And notice it's an imperative. And it's in the present tense. It's not a, you sought things that were above. It is a seek now, every day. Constantly. I think we brought this up once a few weeks ago. Uh, maybe it was you, Sandy, that said something along the lines where you had been accused of being so heavenly minded you were no earthly good or something like that. And, and you know, I, I remember hearing that and you kind of go, is that a bad thing? It's used as a bad thing to say that you're of no value in this life because you're so spiritual. Huh. Really? That's a bad thing. Anytime anyone says that to you, say, can you explain what you mean by that? I'm not going to argue with you. I just want you to explain. When you say you seem to have your head in the clouds and that you're so, so concerned with your Christian life and with the church and all that. And, you know, you're not doing your work very well. Okay, be specific. If you want to critique my work, that's one thing, but don't put it on Christ. But you have to ask yourself, what do you seek? What do you pursue? Uh, one pastor in his sermon, he called it the spend test, the calendar test, and the possessions test. So, go to your bank account and go down the list when you, you know, try to pull it all together. And what did you actually spend your money on? Oh, phooey. I mean, I wrote here, um, is it a pursuit of, my, of the latest book? Uh, yeah, <laughs> sorry, guilty. Uh, I love books, I collect them. I, it's my life, it's my profession. You know, I call it market research, but it's also a, um, a good excuse. But you have to watch that, because if that becomes primary, Christ becomes secondary. If the calendar is filled with things that are not related to above, think on that. I couldn't find it. I was looking for it last night. I, I, I think I now know where it is, but I didn't 
At the moment, I couldn't. But many, many years ago, when we were at another church, we were given an advent calendar for uh, a way to raise money. And it was for the kids. And the idea would be that you would go around the house each day of the, of the calendar and count the number of, I- of that particular item that you had in the, in the house and put a penny in the jar for each one. And so, like day one, was how many pencils do you have in the house? I didn't want to spend that much money for this offering. I mean, they're everywhere. You go in every, oh, there's one in that drawer, in this drawer, in that drawer. How many pairs of scissors do you have? How many band-aids do you have? Oh. <laughs> Just a, what? Pairs of shoes. Yeah, it was a wonderful way of looking at what you possess. Oh, there was how many? It was a penny for every book we had in the house. I went, we can't afford this. <laughs> oh my goodness, I was looking like twenty-five dollars. It was just unreal. And you, but it was jarring because they were trying to make and teach the kids, ended up teaching the adults, how blessed we are. Because you go into other countries, you go to other parts of the world, a pencil? Please, do you have a little nub of something that I can use to write on? Um, And by the way, do you have any paper I can write it on? That's one way to think about this concept here when you seek the things that are above but at the same time you then count your blessings and say thank you Lord for the provision that you've given to me this is extraordinary because Christ becomes part of that conversation And it also says, seats and things that are above. And I came across this little fun fact um, about Michelangelo spending four years painting the Sistine Chapel. All right. You know, you, you kind of tend to forget that he didn't have a big brush and went, <laughs> and it was all done. It was painstakingly done. brush stroke by brush stroke for four straight years. But what did he have to do for four years? He had to look up. They said they they built a scaffold that he laid down on right in front of his nose so he could actually be painting. But that, the, the comment that was made is that apparently after he was done, he had a very hard time walking up to a any, any canvas and painting it straight because he was so used to doing it up. It had become part of his life. His daily life was looking up as part of his work. Interesting. And then it says here, <coughs> seek the things that are above where Christ is not where Christ was, not where Christ is going to be, but where Christ 
is seated at the right hand of God. That's from Psalm 110, by the way, where it talks about the position. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Ephesians 2.6, which was part of our corporate reading this morning. So as we're reading, I'm going, I can't believe it, it happened again. The verse I'm going to use in the class is a verse we're reading together as a congregation. It's the phrase is, He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are with Christ and the union with Christ and that position of Christ being seated at the right hand of God is a position of authority, a position of security. We are with Him in that position. Then a story came, came across a Scottish preacher named John McNeil <coughs> told about an eagle that had been captured when it was quite young. Just a little fledgling little chick, I guess is what you'd call it. And the farmer who snared the bird put a restraint on it so it couldn't fly. And then he turned it loose to roam in the barnyard. It wasn't long until the eagle began acting like a chicken. Scratching and pecking at the ground. This bird, who could soar as high as the heavens, was satisfied to live in a barnyard like a hen. And one day the farmer was visited by a shepherd who came down from the mountains where the eagles lived and he saw this eagle in the barnyard. He said to the farmer, oh, it's a shame you keep that bird hobbled here in your barnyard. Why don't you just let it go? The farmer said, you know, that's a good idea. So he cut off the restraints. But the eagle continued to wander around, scratching and pecking at the ground. Satisfied. So the shepherd realized what was happening, picked it up, took it out into the field, and set it on a very high stone wall, as high as he could reach. And for the first time, the eagle saw the expanse of the blue sky and the glowing sun spread its wings, flapped them, and took off in a spiral flight, acting like an eagle again. And as the writer put it this way, perhaps you have let yourself become comfortable in the barnyard of the world, refusing to claim your lofty position at the right hand of Christ. Seek the things that are above, and you'll soon be longing to rise above the mundane things of the world. It's not too late to soar. The next verse, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are the earth. So you have the second time of the, the idea of being looking above. Verse one says to seek, 
Verse 2 says to think. Set your minds on things that are above. Well, many years ago, a man named Harry Blamires wrote a book called The Christian Mind. And that's what this little book is. It's 1963. Chapter 1. First line. There's no longer a Christian mind. And he goes on. Second paragraph. There's no longer a Christian mind. The modern Christian has succumbed to secularization. He accepts religion, like its morality, its worship, its spiritual culture, but he he rejects the view of the religious life that sets all earthly issues within the context of the eternal. The view which relates all human problems, social, political, cultural, to the doctrinal foundations of the Christian faith. The view that sees all things here below in terms of God's supremacy and nurse's transitoriness or in terms of heaven and hell. This is 60 years ago. And you want to go, Harry, could you have written that today? Uh, Yeah. We let the world define our thinking. We let the world define how we approach cultural issues. We let the culture determine our ethics. It is a battle for the mind. And notice again, it's a imperative. Set your minds. And it's present tense. So it's something you must choose to do. You must do it. And you must do it constantly. As I wrote here, we are in a battle for the mind. We have an eyeball economy vying for our attention. It's unending, it's unyielding, and it's a clawing attack. Hesitate or glance, and you're hooked. So as you know, I I, I like to combine... Uh, various verses together into a narrative. And I am going to read what I put together for this class for today based on this idea. I call it the battle for the mind. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Their end is their destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Therefore... Prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whatever is true, 
whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. To set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swear to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And be renewed by the spirit of your minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and you will have good success. And you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God said, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give everyone according to his way, according to the fruit of his deeds. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is a copy of that. Want everyone have one? I'm sorry, please. Um, this is collected from Second Corinthians, Romans, Philippians, First Peter, Colossians, Proverbs, Ephesians, First John, Joshua, Mark, and Jeremiah. You see how the Word of God speaks so clearly. If you have any notion that the scripture gives you lax or gives you latitude, it does not. It is really clear. He's saying, um, be careful. 
Set your minds on things that are above. Don't forget 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, where Paul wrote, Demas is in love with the present world and has deserted me. One of his own disciples, one of his own retinue, decided, you know what? I want to live my life the way I want. And he fell in love with the present world and ends up in the scripture as a cautionary tale for all of us. Now, the problem is, as you can call it a problem, (coughs) this isn't easy. Especially in today's world that is just demanding our attention on anything else except Christ. It may even seem impossible, but if it was impossible, God wouldn't have commanded it. He would not have encouraged us toward it. Will we fail? Absolutely. There's no question. But when we do, we understand what we have done. And therefore, we can come before Christ in repentance and attempt to rectify it. I wrote here, temporal things provide temporary relief, relief, but we often end up with buyer's remorse. And I thought about it and I said, you know, it's the chase to acquire it that is the adrenaline. But once we got it, it doesn't mean so much anymore. It's like the dog that loves to chase cars. And you want to go to the dog and say, Fido, what will happen if you catch it? You're never going to catch it, but you have a lot of fun chasing that car. But once you catch it, it's like, oh, wow, it smells like rubber. This ain't so much fun. This is what happens. The world deceives us into the chase. And we end up with nothing. Harry Ironside put it this way. It is of all importance that we realize we do not stand before God on the ground of responsibility. The responsible man fails utterly to keep his obligations. There is nothing for him, therefore, but condemnation. But our Lord Jesus Christ has borne that condemnation. He voluntarily, in infinite grace, took the place of the sinner and bore his judgment on the cross. Now, in resurrection, that's verse 1, and now in resurrection, if we have seen, all who believe are not only given a perfect representation by him, before the throne of God, but we are in him in virtue of being partakers of his life. (coughs) It's when the soul enters into this experientially, realizing that the death of Christ, which which faith has given him part, has severed the link that bound him to the world and all its purposes and freed him from the necessity to be subject to the sin of the flesh. And is now free to glorify God as he walks in the newness of life. 
the text goes on. Verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. (coughs) Colossians 2.20, which we have in our passage above, it says, with Christ you died. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Again, we're getting theological. But we have a phrase here that's sometimes misunderstood. It says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. <coughs> That's an unusual ringtone. I was, just as a little side note, it was once I had a, uh, an electrician in my office. I was working on the air conditioning unit, and suddenly I hear this, bloody, bloody, blah, blah, blah. Bloody, bloody, blah, blah, blah. Bloody, bloody, hello. And I, anyway, okay, I'll take care of it. And I go, was that your ringtone? He goes, yeah, it's the one from my wife. And I said, does she know that? He goes, oh, no, no, no. I went, wow, you are really a risk taker. Holy smoke. (laughs) Anyway, so that's a side note. (coughs) So here's a question. And now that you've had all of 60 seconds to think about it, what does Paul mean by this? For you have died. Okay, we, we understand that. It's the idea of dying to sin <coughs> and being resurrected. But he says your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? Anybody would dare to take a stab at this? Very good. I think that's what's being meant here. Because one, one expositor said, when he first saw this, he thought of Superman. So, oh, you know, he had all these powers, but he hid them under his cloak. And then he went into a telephone booth. We realized the other day, we could tell our grandson about telephone booths, and he would go, what are you talking about? <laughs> you tried to cram 17 people in a glass room the size of a person? I don't understand. Anyway, (coughs) the problem with that is that that metaphor is Gnostic. It's the idea of a separation of spirit or power and the human saying one is hidden for spiritual reasons, for the power reasons. That's not what he's saying here. Yeah. It also makes me think of the beginning of the passage of Genesis, of the Spirit of God over the face of the waters, mm-hmm. that being the kind of mother bird over her brood. The, again, back to the protection idea, that there's this, this power that we are part of yeah. 
He just uses an unusual word here. Yeah, Cindy. I, I always thought of this as, along with um, John 17, that Jesus is the Interesting. And that love pouring. That's the union with Christ concept. Um, But again, using the word crypto. That's the Greek word here. (laughs) This is not cryptocurrency. And technically, cryptocurrency is hidden currency. You can't see it. It has no value. It has nothing behind it. Uh, But that's another story. (laughs) It also means cryptic. To conceal or to cover. Now, William Barclay, not Charles, but William Barclay, uh, that goes back to a mistake I made a few weeks ago, quoting Charles by mistake. I meant William. William Barclay suggests there might be wordplay here with those in the proto um, uh, Gnostic thought in the church. Crypto, the Greek word that I mentioned, they, they would recognize this. False teachers called their book so-called wisdom apokrufoi, or with hidden. The books that were hidden from all except those who were initiated. So it was their special stuff. But the word Paul uses here says that our lives are hidden with Christ in, hidden in God and part of the verb apokruptine, which is the adjective apokrufos. One, one word would suggest the other as if Paul is saying, for the rest of us who didn't understand a single word William Barclay just said, For you, the treasures of wisdom are hidden in your secret books. For us, Christ is the treasury of wisdom, and we are hidden in him. It's a contrast to those who are saying, we have special knowledge. Remember they're saying, we worship angels? We have these special visions, and the initiated get that, but the rest of you don't? And we're saying, uh, no. No, this is in Christ. It's hidden in Christ, with Christ, in God. Another writer put it this way. Our life is hid from the world which cannot understand it and understand us. It's hid from the devil who cannot steal it. It's hid often from our own consciousness And when we think it's gone and we mourn our lack of feeling, we find that Christ is still there waiting until the eclipse is over to reveal himself in unchanging love. The security of our life is not in our experience, but it is in him. And I read that and I went, oh, how many times does it feel that Christ is not there? That the prayer life is empty and void. There's no feeling. And there are certain preachers and teachers that say, and they try to whip you into an emotional frenzy, and then the emotion 
drains away and you're left with nothing. And A.B. Simpson called it the eclipse. And Christ is just waiting until the eclipse is over. And he's still there. He never left you. He's waiting for you to see his light. And we have let the world hide that light from us. Verse 4. When, not if. He's used the word if before in this passage. This is a when word. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What a promise. Oh my goodness sake. I mean, look at this passage. If you've been raised in... If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. (coughs) Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear in glory. It's like this. At the end, We focus on this idea of, you know, getting the mind right and focusing on all this. And Paul is came to the conclusion of um, there is a huge measure of hope and a promise here that there is going to be glory in the end. (coughs) Excuse me. And it says here, when Christ who is your life. Well, apart from Christ, we have no life. And as our chart showed earlier, our union with him is this hope of glory. That's in chapter 1 of Colossians, verse 27. It says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of glory in this mercy, mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's referring back to something he had just written. And we miss it. Romans 8. Another wonderful chapter in the Bible. Romans 8, verses 17 and 18. Puts it this way. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's that revealed again. Do you notice how many times Christ is mentioned in these four verses? It's four times in four verses. You have a sense that maybe there's a theme here? That maybe these verses are a little Christocentric? Yeah. But notice the words in front of the word Christ. Go back to verse 1. With Christ. Also verse 1. Where Christ. Verse 3. With Christ. Verse 4. When Christ, also verse 4, with him, meaning Christ. The union 
that we have with Christ, the fullness of Christ, the all-sufficiency of Christ, is laid out in magnificent glory here. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together, for the opportunity to explore four short verses that have extraordinary impact and import. The theology behind it, the idea of Christ's death, resurrection, ascension, and yet we are one with you only by your grace for what you have done, the work you have done for us in the past, in the present, and the future. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.